Now, we are continuing our series, and that series is in Romans, and it's Romans chapter 8. And if you recall, many, many people consider this to be the greatest chapter in all of the Bible. Can we have one chapter that is, quote-unquote, the greatest? Probably not, but it lets you know what people think about this particular chapter, and with good reason. So many things that are packed into there, which we have just begun to explain. In week number one, we looked at that one particular verse in particular, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, and we said this, the Greek is not in particular, it's not um, um, difficult to interpret. What that means is that there really is no condemnation from God to his children. And it's not because he knows his children are going to finally get it right. And so he gets to back off and say, no, there's no condemnation solely because of what Jesus Christ has already done. He did everything that was necessary. He lived the life that we could not live. He died the death that we should have died. He was raised again from the dead on the third day. He ascended back to the Father. Everything was completed. In fact, so much so that Jesus said while he was on the cross, it's finished. It's done. So since Jesus has done everything that's necessary, there's no condemnation for those who place their faith in Jesus. It does not mean that you will never sin again. It means that your sin will never be held against you because of what um, God has done. Uh, Dan talked to us um, about the outlook. Um, the outlook of the flesh is death. The outlook of the spirit is life and peace. We're going to pick that up um, here this morning. And uh, last week, we looked simply at uh, fear drives us, love compels us. I think you'll see where the wording came from. I won't walk you through the outline again. Just one more reminder. It was Leon Morris that told us an interesting feature of this chapter, which is not always noticed, is there's not a single imperative. Paul is talking about life in the Spirit, life in which the Spirit guides so constantly that there is no need for a string of commandments. Now, let that last little part sit in. Life in the Spirit, that the Spirit guides so constantly that there's no need for a string of commandments. Would this characterize your life? Would your life be characterized by being compelled by the Holy Spirit that you are listening to, you are obeying, that, that the Spirit is doing something in your heart, prompting you on a consistent basis, and you're so in tune with the Holy Spirit that you're willing to say, yep. Even when there's not a specific thing that's laid out in the Scriptures over what to do here and there, your mindset is, God, I really want to do whatever your leading is. And so you've learned how to slow down, how to listen, how to discern what the Spirit of God sounds like. And so you just obey. I think that would be all of our desire. I wish it was true of me more in life, but it certainly is a desire. Last thing before we hit our text. I think most of us agree that we all have a debt in life. For some of us, it's financial. For some of us, it's emotional. There's a debt of some kind that we have in life towards someone else. Many of us feel a certain debt that we owe to our parents because of the way that our parents raised us. They loved us. They invested into us. They, they showed up um, all throughout our lives. No matter how rotten we were to them when we were younger, they just kept going. And so many of us now say, you know, I've got a debt to my mom and dad to just love them back in the same kind of a way that they love me. 
And most of us feel as though we'll never fully repay that debt to someone else. A debt, a debt that we have in life, though, uh, in which we see that debt as a duty is oftentimes a burden. When there's a debt that we have that we feel as though it is coming from the other person who may have done something, that their attitude and mindset is, you owe me. That is a burden that is heavy to carry. On the flip side, when we have a debt, something that we know, somebody has done something, when there is a debt that we have that is actually seen as a privilege, now that becomes a blessing. And here's what I mean by that. When a debt is a duty, we are are sometimes looking for the opportunity to pay that debt back to get them off of our backs or to get our own consciences assuaged or somehow or another we can go ahead and get this thing over with so I can get it off my back. When there is a privilege that we have, a debt that we may owe to someone else, when it's a privilege, we are looking for an opportunity to repay that. We can't wait to do it. Imagine a scenario Let's say perhaps that uh, you are on a street and you are engaged in a conversation. Perhaps you're texting on your phone. You're not paying attention. You walk out into the street and all of a sudden you get tackled. And your first thought is, what moron is, is tackling me here? But you look up and there is a bus that is speeding by that there was no way they were going to be able to stop. That person tackled you and saved your life. And let's say then that person gets up and says, I want you to know you owe me. You probably would feel as though you really did owe them. They really did save your life. And you'd probably say, okay, I I do owe you. And what if they called you every day and said, do you remember that time that I saved you? Just wanted to remind you. You're on your phone. You weren't paying attention. And I came in, tackled you. Remember that? Every day they remind you of what it is that they have done for you and how much it is that you owe them. That would be a debt of duty. Same scenario, though. Let's say that person, after saving you, you look up and you say, what were you doing? You said, I just saw this bus coming, and so I just wanted to get you out of the way. And they get up and they make sure that you're okay. And you were to say, what can I do for you in return? You would say, nothing. There's nothing. you could. I didn't do anything that a billion other people in the world wouldn't do. I'm just glad that you get a chance to go home and say hello to your wife and kids. Now, what kind of a debt would that be? Let's say you saw them 10 years later. And you knew it was that person, it's the exact same intersection, and there they are trying to make their way across the intersection. But they can't do it. And the reason they can't do it is because they've had some sickness that has taken over their body and their legs just aren't working. And so they're trying to make their way across in a walker with some assistance. Would you hesitate in a moment? And would it be anything other than a joy to help them simply to get across the street? A debt of duty is a burden. A debt 
of privilege is a blessing. Can I ask you, how do you view your relationship with God? Do you have a debt of duty to God? After all that he's done for you, after all that he saved you from, do you wake up with the reminder every morning, you owe me? Or do you hear something altogether different from God saying, I love you? And you'll never be able to repay me. Here's what I want is I want for you to enjoy me. I don't want you to live life in such a manner that you who have been blessed by me will just in turn be a blessing to someone else. Our view of God, we said it last week, our view of God determines our every action. Our view of our debt to God determines our every spiritual investment. So I can read this thing in the mornings. And Tuesday morning comes around and I can get there and say, oh man, after all that God's done, I probably should read something. I don't even have a desire to read right now. What does that say about me? And if I don't read something, then God's probably going to do something to me. He's probably going to make me have a horrible day. I'm going to sprain my ankle somewhere along the way so that he'll remind me how much I need him. And then prayer. Talking to God. I probably should talk to him. Good grief. I don't want to talk to him right now. I don't want to take the time. I'm not sure I have the time. I'm already late for work, getting ready. Or is it just, man, I get a chance to talk to my dad. There in North Carolina, my dad had enough energy to get out there and join us. And there was never a moment in which I said, oh, man, I'm going to have to talk to my dad. It was a privilege. And it was a blessing to me. Your view of God is going to determine your every spiritual action. What I'm here to tell us today is that the scriptures are going to inform us that that we have a debt that we owe to God. And that debt that we owe, you can either view it as a duty or you can view it as a privilege. And I want to beg you, pray to God that he will convince you that it is a privilege. If you have your Bibles open to Romans chapter 8, and if you have the physical ability, would you stand as we read verses 9 through 13? They'll be on the screen. You can follow along here from the word of the Lord. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You may be seated. 
here in verse 9, I think Paul simply tells us the simple truth that the Spirit of God dwells in the children of God. You do not have to worry if you're a child of God as to whether or not the Spirit of God is actively involved in your life. Now, some of you may object and say, but I'm not sure that I hear from God often like I know other Christians do. It seems as though the Spirit may be more inside of them than He is inside of me. It seems as though they may get more information, more guiding, more leading, etc. And I want to tell you, it all comes down to how much we pay attention. But the Spirit of God dwells in the people of God. Now, this is a bit of a mystery. What does it mean to dwell inside of us? When I was a kid and I was told that, you know, Jesus came to live in your heart, that God lived in you, I could not conceive how it was that God, this massive creator of the universe, could be contained into something that I was told was the size of my fist. I didn't know what exactly that meant. But God takes up residence inside of his people. Now, what does that mean? It means that God is not just externally sort of dwelling around you and, and speaking to you. That somehow or another, he is inside of you. You are in him. Now, I'm not talking about we've been fused together somehow. I'm, not I'm saying that God, alien, his spirit somehow or another dwells inside of us. I don't know exactly what that means. I just know he's inside of us. Make sense? Such that he actually has the ability to control us. Not like puppets. Not like we're on these little strings over here and, and, and doing his bidding um, without any sort of thought or, or agreement to it. He has the ability to, to give us the power to live out the kind of life that he wants us to live and that we also want to live. Now, do you know why we want to live out the kind of life that God wants us to live out? You ready for this? Because the Spirit of God dwells inside of us, and that Spirit actually molds and shapes and stirs and directs our desires. He actually changes those desires. If you are a true follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, one who has surrendered the controls of their life over to God, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Whether or not you feel it doesn't matter. Because in any given moment, I may feel as though God is present. And in any given other moment, I may not feel as though God is present at all. In fact, he may feel very distant depending upon my behavior. Do you know why that is? It's because of what we pay attention to. You ever been on a walk with someone? And, and while you're on this walk, you know what's going on. You, you know you, you can't stop it, but your mind is consumed with something else. Maybe it's another relationship. Maybe it's something going on in, in a friend or a child or or maybe you've got an event that's coming up that you just can't get your mind off of. Maybe there's a particular burden that you may have or a loved one may have, and you just can't get off your mind. And you know that the other person is talking. You hear sounds that are coming out, but you're not processing the information. Even though that person is right next to you, you don't feel close to that person. And if they're paying attention at all, they probably don't feel close to you either because they probably know that you're not paying attention to him. So it is with our walk with God. He is in you. 
He is walking with you. He is speaking to you. But if we are not paying attention to him, we will never feel close to him. But just because we don't feel close to him doesn't mean that he's not there. So the spirit of God dwells in the children of God. Just one thing to point out here in verse 9. That you that he puts in there is emphatic in nature. So he's talking about those that have been controlled by the flesh and, and the destruction that comes from that. And then he points the giant finger and says, but you. And I think the reason he's doing that is because many of us unnecessarily question whether or not we really belong to God. Now, if you're not moved and stirred, if you don't have a desire to walk with God, if you don't have a desire to obey God, then please do question whether or not you are actually related to him. But when you have a desire to walk with him, when you have a desire to obey him, and you don't feel all the time close to him, we unnecessarily question whether or not we we know him. So I think that's why Paul says, no, 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 no. You. You my friend, have the Spirit of God that is dwelling in you. The other thing I think he wants us to see in that emphatic you is is pointing out to him, hey, do you guys understand that the Spirit of God, meaning the same Spirit who is present when creation took place and everything was made out of nothing, actually has taken up residence with you? And while running an entire universe, making sure that everything happens in a sovereign order, that every little detail that needs to happen with the animals and the stars and et cetera, that same God is living and residing inside of you. And he is simultaneously capable of running everything that is in existence and also listening to you. In verses 10 to 11, he tells us that the Spirit of God gives life to the children of God. In verse 10, he tells us that he gives eternal spiritual life. Look at that again. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. What he's telling us in this passage is that there is eternal life for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. It's a truism. It's a truth that he gives to us. The spirit gives eternal life. But then he tells us in verse 11 that the spirit is also going to give eternal physical life. We're going to have eternal spiritual life, but we're also going to have eternal physical life. Have you ever thought about what life is going to look like in heaven? It's not going to be angels flying around like you and I, these wings and stuff, and this sort of metaphysical weirdness, and so we kind of float around. It's going to look a lot like it looks right now. A physical world, a new world that's going to be created without any sin. None of it whatsoever. And we're going to be involved in many of the same things that we're involved now. I will guarantee you, and this is a guarantee from David, not from the Lord, but I will guarantee I'm going to be fishing in heaven. And I don't know how this is going to work because, you know, we're originally going to be all vegetarians, which I've never questioned God except for that. But somehow we're going to, I'm going to be fishing. And at some point, my brothers and I, we're going to start some sort of pickup softball game. Right, we're going to have physical life that's going to be eternal in nature. It's not just this weirdness thing that's going to happen out there. The Holy Spirit 
is the one who gives to us the life of Christ, who has existed all the way from eternity past. He will exist all the way into eternity future. That somehow that he is going to give us the life that we want. We're going to have no time pressures whatsoever. So he tells us, Kenneth Boa wrote this, the presence of the Spirit inside the believer is a critical factor. The Spirit's presence determines whether a person is a true believer. The Spirit's presence regenerates the human spirit, and the Spirit's presence will one day regenerate the believer's mortal body. I don't know what your wishes are. I get asked this question from others uh, periodically. Hey, is it okay? Is it sinful? Is it wrong for, for, uh, for me to cremate my body when the time comes for me to, to be with the Lord? I would say, from dust... We came, and to dust we will return. Do you really think it's going to be difficult for God to put back your body if it's cremated? Like the guy who started with nothing, nothing that was in existence, and he speaks things into being. He reaches his hands into the dirt and makes Adam. Do you really think it's going to be difficult for him to bring you back? You're going to have eternal spiritual and eternal physical life in a similar manner to what we have now, just without any presence whatsoever of sin. It's going to be cool. In verse 12, he tells us that the children of God don't have to be driven by the flesh. In other words, we don't have to give in to our sinful desires that bombard us. You may feel as though sometimes you have no other option. You may feel as Paul did, remember in the chapter previous to this, that which I hate doing, I find myself doing, I can't make myself do what I want to do in there. Who's going to rescue me? What he also tells us in the chapter before that, in chapter 6, is that we don't have to, to uh, any longer obey this flesh that is in us. In other words, if you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, and if you're a child of God, you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. That Spirit brings to you the power of Jesus to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. So you don't have to sin. Now here's the frustrating part of that, and I wish I could get away from this. You know what that means? It means that I have nobody to blame for my sin but me. Because God has given me everything that is needed for life, for godliness. Everything that I need has been already given to me. So now it's a matter of whether or not I'm going to choose to trust God or whether I'm going to indulge myself. I'm going to choose to say, God, right now, this is what I want to do. But I'm going to take a step of faith and I'm going to trust that what you will do for me in the future is going to outdo what it is that I want right now. Otherwise, I can take a step in this direction, indulge myself, uh, not resist the flesh, and it's going to lead to destruction of some sort. The Spirit of God has been given. I don't have to do this. I'm not a slave. I can't blame anybody else. It's my choice. Or I can go over here. Leon Morris, once again, uh, wonderful commentator said this, there is, of course, a sense in which they are in the flesh 
They live this bodily life as all people do, but they are not bound to it, not characterized by it. They do not belong to it. On the contrary, they are in the spirit. I like that. We are not bound to it. We're not characterized by it. We don't belong to it. You do not have to be identified with your sin. You're not the bully. You're not a drunk. You're not loose. You're not whatever sin others have pointed at you. And in particular, the evil one who points that that, that finger every single day, he screams at you. You will never overcome this. You'll never get past this. This is just who you are. It's not true. In the words of Steve Brown, it's a lie from the pit of hell. It smells like smoke. You don't have, you're not characterized by it. You don't belong to it. If the spirit of God is dwelling inside of you, you already possess everything that you need to say no. In verse 13, he tells us the flip side of that. That we don't have to be driven by the flesh in verse 12, but we can, in fact, be compelled by the Spirit. Read it again. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. It doesn't mean an immediate death. It means internally. You keep going down the road of just indulging the flesh over and over again. You're going to die inside. It's going to kill you. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The word here is mortify. If you wage war against your flesh, and the best way to wage war against your flesh is to fight to walk in the Spirit, the best way to not do the bad things is to pursue the good things. The best way to avoid an affair with another person is to enjoy the spouse God has given you. The the best way to avoid any sin over here is to pursue what it is that God has already given you. Pray that God's contentment would be given to you, that the joy would be given to you. The children of God can, in fact, be compelled by the Spirit, meaning that voice can become so loud, it can become so alluring that this actually seems to me to be the best possible thing. I won't bore you again with my story, but when I began to really learn this truth was early on in in my time as as, as a believer. And, and being enslaved and controlled by the power of alcohol. And trying so hard to work the 12 steps. And trying so hard to get sober. And in particular, I was trying to sober up because I knew I had parents that had gone way out of the way to invest in me. My brothers had put up with so much. that They had gone well beyond the call of duty in order to love me. And I felt as though I owed them. And as much as I felt as I owed them, and they weren't pointing that in my face, as much as I felt I owed them, it was a duty that I was trying to somehow or another muster up all the strength for. But then God, by his grace, opened my eyes and I began to see the beauty of what it is that he had already done and the power that he had already given me. 
and alcohol lost its luster. And sobriety with God became far more attractive. And that which I thought I needed in order to be funny, in order to, to be uh, et cetera, all that, no longer held attraction to this guy who was actually walking in the power of the Spirit. And this guy wasn't nearly as crazy as this guy. And this guy didn't get nearly as many laughs as this guy did. But this guy over here, there was far more joy and contentment and satisfaction. The Spirit of God can compel you in a way that will outdo being driven by the flesh. Because remember, fear drives us, but love compels us. Fear of doing the wrong thing will never be as powerful as being compelled to do the right thing. Warren Wearsby, great writer, said this, it is not enough for us to have the Spirit. The Spirit must have us. I want to close um, our time uh, by reading to you a story. This came out in uh, a book, and the book is uh, entitled In the Grip of Grace from Max Lucado. And this came out, I think, in the mid to late 90s. And in my opinion, which is all that is, is my opinion, it's it's his best book, theologically speaking. It's profound. But he gives an illustration on the front end of this book that the first time I read it, um, I, I truly, no pun intended here, was gripped so significantly by it. It would uh, mark and, and forever change the way that I view um, what it is that God has done and is doing. You know, as a communicator, you should never read a story, correct? They tell you that in seminary. They tell you that in every college class. Tough. I'm going to read this anyway. Hang in there with me. It's, it's well worth it. Once there were four sons who lived in a mountain castle with their father. The eldest was obedient, but the younger three were forgetful. The father had warned them of the river, but they had not listened. He had told them to stay out of its furious waters, but they didn't obey. He had begged them to stay clear of the bank lest they be swept downstream, but the lure was too strong. Each day they ventured closer and closer to the bank until one dared to reach in and feel the waters. Hold my hand so I won't fall in. And the brothers did. But when he touched the water, the current yanked him and the other two into the tide and rolled them down the river. Over the rocks they bounced. Through the channels they roared. On the swells they rode. They cried for help, but their cries were lost in the roar of the river. They fought to gain their balance, but were powerless before the current. And after hours of struggle, they gave up hope of escape and surrendered to wherever the river would lead. Finally, the waters dumped them on the bank in a strange land in a distant country in a barren place. Savage people dwelt in the land. It was not safe like their home. Cold winds chilled the land. It was not warm like their home. Rugged mountains marked the land. It was not inviting like their home. Though they didn't know where they were, of one fact they were sure, they were not intended for this place. For a long time, the sons lay on the bank, stunned at their fall, not knowing where to turn. And after some time, they gathered their strength and re-entered the waters, hoping to walk upstream. The current was too strong. They ventured to walk the river's edge, but the terrain was too steep. They pondered climbing the mountains, but the peaks were too high. Besides, they didn't know the way. Finally, they built a fire and sat down. We made a mistake, they admitted, and we are a long way from home. 
With the passage of time, the sons learned to survive in the strange land. They found nuts for food and killed animals for skins. They determined not to forget their homeland or abandon hopes of returning. Each day they set about the tasks of finding food and building shelter. Each evening they built a fire and told stories of their father and older brother and longed to see them again. Then one night the brother, one brother failed to come to the fire. His brothers found him the next morning in the hills with the savages. He was building a hut of grass and mud. I've grown tired of our talks, he told them. What good does it do to remember? Besides, this land isn't so bad. I'll build a great house and settle here. But it isn't home, they objected. No, but it is if you don't think of the real one. But what of father? What of him? He isn't here. He isn't near. Am I to spend forever awaiting his arrival? I'm making new friends. I'm learning new ways. If he comes, he comes. But I'm not holding my breath. And so the two brothers left the hut, building brother, and walked away. They continued to meet around the fire to speak of home and dream of the return. But one evening, one brother failed to appear at the campfire. The next morning, his brother found the missing brother near the river, stacking rocks in the water. It's no use, he explained as he worked. Father won't come for me. I must go to him. I offended him. I insulted him. I failed him. I was the one who first touched the water. I was the one who caused you and our other brothers to fall. There is only one option. I will build a path through the river and walk into our father's presence. Rock upon rock, I will stack until I can journey upstream the distance of our fall. When he sees how hard I have worked and how diligent I have been, he will have no choice but to open the door and let me into his house. The last brother did not know what to say. Alone, he returned to the fire. And one night, as the remaining brothers sat near the fire, he heard a familiar voice speak out of the shadows. Father has sent me to bring you home. He lifted his face to see the eyes of his oldest brother. For a long time, the two embraced. And the eldest finally asked, and your brothers? One has made his home here. The other is building a path to our father. And so the firstborn set out to find his siblings. He found one in a thatched hut on a hillside. Go away, stranger, screamed the brother through the window. You're not welcome here. I have come to take you home. You have not. You've come to take my mansion. This is no mansion, the firstborn countered. This is a hut. It is a mansion, the finest in the lowlands. I built it with my own hands. Now go away. You cannot have my mansion. Don't you remember the house of our father? I have no father. You were born in a castle in a distant land where the air is warm and the fruit plentiful. You disobeyed our father and ended up in this strange land. I have come to take you home. The brother peered through the window at the firstborn as if seeing a face he had seen in a dream. But the pause was brief, for suddenly the savages in the house filled the window as well. Go away, interloper, they demanded. This is not your home. You're right, responded the firstborn. But neither is it his. In the eyes of the two brothers met again once more. The brother felt a tug in his heart, but the savages had won his trust. He just wants your mansion, they cried. Send him away. And so he did. Firstborn sought the other brother. He found him knee deep in the river, stacking rocks. He struggled to keep his balance against the current. Father has sent me to take you home. The brother never looked up. 
I can't talk now, my friend. I, I must work. Father knows you have fallen, but he will forgive you. He may, the brother interrupted, but I have to get to the castle first. I must build a road up the river. Then I will ask for his mercy. He, he has already given his mercy. I will carry you up the river. The river is too long. The river is too swift for your legs. The task is too great for your hands. He sent me. I am stronger. For the first time, the brother looked up. How dare you speak to me with such irreverence? My father will not simply forgive. I have sinned. I have sinned greatly. He told me to avoid the river, and I disobeyed. Not only that, I pulled my brothers in the water with me. I am the great sinner. I need much work. No, my brother, you don't need much work. You need much grace. The distance between you and our father's house is too great. You haven't enough strength nor the stones to build the road. This is why father sent me. I will carry you home. Are you saying I can't do it? Are you saying I'm not strong enough? Look at my work. Look at my rocks. Already I have journeyed five steps, but you have five million to go. The younger brother looked at the firstborn with anger. I know who you are. You are the voice of evil. You are trying to seduce me from my holy work. Get behind me, you serpent. The rock he was about to place in the river, he lunged at the firstborn. Heretic, screamed the path builder. Leave this land. You can't stop me. I will build this road and stand before my father, and he will have to forgive me. I will win his favor. I will earn his mercy. And the firstborn shook his head. Favor won is no favor. Mercy earned is no mercy. You treat your father like a whore trying to buy his love. This time the rock hit its mark. Leave me, stranger, screamed the brother. Firstborn brushed the blood from his forehead. I appeal to you, let me carry you up the river. And the response was another rock, so the firstborn turned and left. The youngest brother was waiting when the firstborn returned. The other two didn't come? No. One chose pleasure and the other guilt, but neither chose the father. So will they remain? The elder brother nodded slowly, at least for now. And will we return to our father, asked the brother? Yes. Will he forgive me? Would he have sent me if he wouldn't? And so the younger brother climbed on the back of the firstborn and began the journey home. A debt of duty is a burden. A debt of privilege is a blessing. How do you view God? Because he is trying to scream to you through this chapter. I'm your loving, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, dad. 